Hi, and welcome to the Hollywood Dreammaker Podcast. I'm your host, Billy Gallo. I'm a 35-year veteran actor. I'm the kid who came out to Hollywood with 200 bucks in my pocket and a one-way ticket when I was 18. Didn't know a soul out here, and I've been living my dream ever since. I've had an amazing career. I've been an Academy Award-winning film, blockbuster film, hit TV series. You name it, I've done it, and I got the IMDb credits to prove it. Six years ago, I opened up my own school, the Manhattan Actors Studio, where I found my true passion. That's teaching the craft of acting, but I'm only teaching the craft of being the guy. Success leaves clues. I know how to make dreams a reality. I did it for myself, and I do it on a daily basis for my students, and I can help you achieve yours. Welcome to my podcast. Let's get started. I am super excited to introduce my guest. He's an Emmy award-winning director, writer, producer. He's directed and or produced more than 20 independent films and documentaries. Some of his films are Witchboard, The Cellar, Brain Dead, Bigfoot, and the cult classic Night of the Demons, which I had the honor of being part of 33 years ago. I want to welcome the talented Kevin Tenney to the podcast. Well, thanks, Billy. I'm glad to be here. It's good to see you, Kevin. You too, buddy. You know, I was just thinking about it. You know, when I wrote 33 years, it's crazy that we made a film 33 years ago and that this cast still feels like family. I mean, I've worked on a lot of projects in my life and I've been part of a lot of casts, but this is the only film that i mean lance fenton drove by yesterday he was yeah and he he beeped his horn you know it's like it's it's, it's bizarre that we still have you know this relationship it's a family that was created when we made that film and we're still close today so i i I think it's amazing it's funny you mentioned lance because when i used to live on the west side uh, over by the santa monica airport susan and i would go to the uh denny's for breakfast over the weekend and we ran into lance there all the time it's crazy Yeah. So, you know, I created the podcast to inspire young artists to follow their dreams. You know, if Mm -hmm. a kid like me who can come out to Hollywood at 18 with 200 bucks in his pocket, a one way ticket and make a career, make the dream a reality. You know, why can't the listener? If this is a dream, this is your passion that if I can do it, you can do it. Yeah. So yeah. I, I would love to, you know, I mean, you've become a, a, an amazing, an Emmy award winning director. You know, where, when did you know you had that dream to direct? Oh, wow. Pretty early. I'd say about fifth or sixth grade when my brother and I would walk home from school, I'd see an alley and I think I'd say, Oh, that would be a great location for a movie. And I would make a note of it. And then Bell and Howe, uh, the year I was, in sixth grade, came out with a camera. Now, this is back before video and even the Super 8 cameras didn't have sound. They were all silent. But this one, you could buy a camera, a cassette tape recorder, and a projector. And what would happen is you could put the film in your camera, and there was a cord that hooked the camera to the tape recorder. And then every time you pulled the trigger on the camera, it would roll the tape and keep it in sync with the picture. Then when you got the film back, you'd put it in the the projector and you'd hook that same tape recorder to the projector and it kept the sound in sync so you could listen to it. So I got that and I wrote a detective murder mystery (laughs) and me and all my friends and neighborhood kids, and we're all sixth graders, we put on our Sunday best suits and play the parts of adults. 
and, you know, private detectives, murder victims, criminals. And I shot the film. Unfortunately, because of the fact that it was hooked to this tape recorder, there was no editing. You had to shoot in sequence and you had to get it right in one take because you couldn't do a take two and cut it or cut out take one later. So we actually shot the film twice because we got about halfway through before we fucked up a shot and then ah, we're done. We have to start over. So a few weeks later, we got back together and we shot about two thirds before we, we hit a snag. And I realized this is probably not a really practical way to shoot sound. So from then on, I just used it as a silent camera and I shot a lot of silent stuff. And then when they came out later with the sound Super 8s, it actually had a magnetic stripe on the film and you could actually record the sound on the film and it would keep it in sync. I shot about 10 mostly action films and they ranged anywhere from 20 minutes long to an hour long. And we had car chases and I uh, we would go out like early Sunday morning when there was no traffic and shoot ourselves racing up and down the streets and making wild turns and skids. And then I decided for one film, I wanted to blow up a car. <laughs> I called the uh, police department and I asked to talk to the um, bomb squad. And this is a small town, Fairfield, California, up in Northern California, smack dab between Sacramento and San Francisco. And they said, we don't have a bomb squad. We have our resident bomb expert. And I said, can I talk to him? And they said, yeah. And they hooked me up with him. And I'm on the phone. I said, hi, I'm in high school. I'm like a junior in high school. I said, I'm making a, a student film and I'm going to blow up a car. And I was wondering if you could give me any advice. <laughs> and he says, yeah, half a stick of dynamite should do it. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm a high school student. I don't really have access to dynamite. And he said, oh, yeah. I said, I was thinking, though, that I could get a friend who's over 21 to buy black powder for me and I'll fill a tennis ball can, can set it off with like 150 feet of zip line. And he goes, oh, yeah, that'll work fine. <laughs> now, can you imagine trying to do that today? No. Talks to me over the phone. I tell him I'm yeah. a high school kid and he proceeds to help me to fit, determine how to blow up this car. Wow. So did you blow it up? Yeah, we found a farmer who had a, a private property. So he had a road on his property. I bought him a bottle of scotch, or I had my dad buy it for me to give to him. And he let us have his road. And we to, uh, I, we had a car that we used for the car chase, a friend's car. And then I bought an old clunker for like 50 bucks that didn't run. And I bought like house paint and painted it to match the car we were actually using. And then we towed it out on the road and we rigged it up and blew it up. I love it. I love it. Do you still have this film? I'd love to see this film. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually have, you know what, on my Facebook page, I have a clip of that car chase with the explosion. I'm, I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah, it's, it'll be it'll be early on when I first joined Facebook, like 2009 or something. So that's amazing. So you started making films in sixth grade with your friends, you know, right. stuff a little Super 8 camera. And then as you as you started getting older, you started doing some action films and blowing up cars. And you say you, right. you knew, you know, your whole life pretty much that you wanted to make movies. Yeah, but I figured I honestly back then, you know, film schools weren't that prevalent like they are now prevalent, prevalent like they are now. And uh, I went to my junior college. I had no intention actually of going to community college because I'd hated high school so much. I would actually go to the class first day, figure out exactly how much work I had to do not to flunk. And I would do just that much work, no more. The only class I did really well in is creative writing because I enjoyed it and I was good at it. So I always got A's with a lot of C's. <laughs> and anyway, community college, they offered a couple of filmmaking classes. 
So I thought, okay, that could be interesting. And I took those and the teacher there had been at, had gone to UCLA. And he said, after he saw one of my films, he said, you have to go to film school. I said, what's that? And he said, you have to apply to USC, UCLA and AFI right now. <laughs> so I did and I got into USC and uh, came down here. And even then I was, and I think still am the only student, you get to do five Super 8 films, then you would do two, one with a partner, you were the director of one, he was where you did like black and white 35 millimeter. And then only a handful of people, you all got to pitch a script and then the committee would pick and only a handful would actually get to direct that film and then everyone else was on their crew. You'd crew it up with the students whose films didn't get picked. And I did an undergraduate film, a TV project, because I was in the TV department as an undergrad and then I was a grad student as a film in the film department and I did a film as a grad student. So I'm the only student who ever did that, did an undergrad TV and grad film. And my undergrad TV won the Emmy for Best uh, Dramatic Short that year. Wow. So you have an Emmy Award for Best Dramatic Short. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I did not know that. You're an yeah. award-winning director. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, I didn't hear really used to talk. As a matter of fact, I just recently dig my uh, dug it out of the garage and it's all bent up because I didn't. I, I don't know why I didn't keep like putting it on the mantle when I moved in places. I would just pack it. I packed it up and then kind of never took it out of the box again. So really, I have it out now, finally, but <laughs> it's a little worse for wear. <laughs> That's funny. So now you're at uh, USC. You're making films, and and then uh, you know how do you how do you transfer you know transition into making some you know movie movies you know with a budget. Well, again, I was turned down for the department three times, wow. and I had to. I actually. And they wouldn't see you. You couldn't go talk to the head of the department because they they were so used to getting having people want to come in and say, "How come I got turned down?" They wouldn't they wouldn't see you. So I made an appointment with the head of the department's secretary, and I lied and said I was already in the department and I wanted to do some career counseling with him. Huh. So I made the appointment, and then the day of the appointment, I go in, and I come in and I sit down, and he comes in and he sits down and he said, and I'll, his name was Mort Zarkov, and he says. So you have some career uh, stuff you want to discuss. And I said, no, actually, I was turned down. I want to know why. <laughs> and he goes, he was obviously caught off guard. And he said, well, all I can tell you is we had like 3,000 applicants and we only had room for 10. And those 10 were obviously better than you or their applications were better than you. I said, I don't believe that. I said, I don't believe not only do I not believe you had 10 applicants better than mine, I don't believe you had one better than mine. Mm, and he I said, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I was, you know, from that point, I was, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. Yeah, no, I, love um, I don't know if today I'd have the same balls, but, you know, you know, you're love young, it. you're kind of, you don't really understand consequences yet at that age. You know, I was like 22 or 21, something like that. He says, well, I wasn't on the committee this year, but I'll go get your file. And he walks out and I hear him reaming his secretary for not making sure I was a student for you. And now I'm beginning to realize this might have been a mistake, you know, that I might have made sure I never get in now. So he comes back in and he's looking through my file and he uh, sits down and he goes, huh. 
And he goes, and I had a letter, I had a letter back in the, a letter of recommendation from my film school teacher up north who said, I'm not going to write the traditional letter. I'm just going to say, I think Kevin's going to be a famous and great filmmaker. That's it. And you'd be crazy not to let him in. And I also, by chance, I was in the, I took a drama class while I was waiting to get into the cinema department because that's it. You always try to make sure you're keeping abreast of what's going on. I figured it was a class on how to direct actors. So I thought, okay. And by luck, Arthur Hiller's daughter was in that class. And I got to know her because she was dating a friend of mine at that time. And her father, Arthur Hiller, directed uh, Love Story and uh, Silver Streak. And he was the head of the uh, Motion Picture Academy at that time. And I said, I'm trying to get in the cinema department. Do you think he might write me a nice letter? Because I've met him by then a few times. And she goes, well, he won't write you a letter if he hasn't seen any of your work. So I gave him my Super 8 projector with a couple of my films, and he watched them. He then wrote me this great letter, and in it he said, Kevin directs action better than I do. And Mort, turns out, was friends with him. And when he read that, he kind of lightened up. He wasn't, like, ready to throw me out of his office anymore. He said... I wasn't on the committee, but let me read what they wrote here. He said, they wrote at the top of your page, Kevin would either be an excellent, brilliant student or a giant pain in the ass. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, why can't I be both? (laughs) And he said, let me see what I can do. And a week later, I got a letter accepting me into the department. That's amazing. But again, you got to push, you know, you got to love it. Love it. The determination, you know, it's like, don't take no for an answer. I mean, don't sit on the sidelines. Listen, I I remember, you know, and I tell the story on my podcast before is when I came out to Hollywood, you know, Warner Brothers, I walked over to Warner Brothers and I wanted to get into the lot. And the guy said, no, the security guy said, sorry, kid, you can't come in. So I literally walked around the building, climbed the fence, cleaned, and and I I was on the lot. And I walked up right up to Kevin Bacon. They were filming a movie, Quicksilver, and I hung out all day. Nobody knew I just jumped over the wall. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I was rubbing elbows, you know, schmoozing. and Exactly. Like, don't tell me no. If you tell me no, I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, yeah. But the the determination was, was amazing that you got yourself into USC. Yeah, yeah. So now you're in USC and you talked about writing. And I think it's really important for directors or even actors to, you know, really develop their writing because, you know, sometimes it's that ability that helps you create your own projects. You're not, you don't have to really worry about, you know, somebody else, you know, giving you a job. You're the person you turn to desk and go, Hey, this is my project. You want to come read for me. You want to work for me. Yeah. So, I mean, I believe. And even if you don't, even if, yeah. And even if you decide don't, you're not going to write your own stuff or you're not quite good enough to write your own stuff. It still helps you develop an understanding. So when you get a script, you can go, oh, this is good or oh, this is not a good script. I don't know if I want to be attached. And it also, I think for actors, especially, it helps you to figure out how to develop your own backstory for your character. If you know something about writing and you know about protagonists and antagonistic forces and, you know, tragedy versus comedy and all of that, it helps you develop your backstory for your character, which then means when you come on to set to to perform, you actually have an idea of who this guy is. 
Yeah, I love that. I tell my actors all the time. That's, you know, that's the homework. You want to know who you are. You want to know where you come from. You want to know, you know, if you kind of, you grew up in Brooklyn, New York, well, you're a product of that environment. You walk differently than a kid that grew up in Beverly Hills. Yeah. So, you know, knowing, making that choice, you know, knowing what that childhood was like, you know, if your father was a police officer, if your father was a crackhead, you know, that's a different kid. He grew up with a different yeah. father. He's going to exactly. behave differently. He's going to act differently. You know, were you rich? Were you poor? You know, all of that, knowing all the history of the character is truly what gives you confidence because then you can walk into a room and go, you know what? I know this better than you, the writer who wrote it, because you didn't yeah. write the backstory. I did. Yeah. I did a private moment exercise last night. I know what my character did last night. I know what my character has in their pockets because I put it in there. Yeah. You know? And those are yeah. choices. Those are truly choices. And I believe talent lies within your choices as an actor. You know? Absolutely. Raw talent goes so far. Then you got to do the work. Yeah. You, know? you, you know, got to do the work. It is. It really is all about the work and it's all about the determination. I've read people early in their careers some who bred brilliantly and some who were like, yeah, but then, you know, five years later, the star is the guy who read like me because he had a lot more drive and the more talented guy never went anywhere because he relied solely on just his talent mm-hmm. and not doing anything else. You know, I say you got to, you know, take an acting class. Even if you turn out to be the best actor in the class, even if you're better than your instructor, it's still you're making connections, you're meeting other actors. And a lot of these acting classes, the teachers have ends with studios or producers or production companies or casting agents that you can benefit from. Sure. I get my phone rings all the time with, uh, you know, student filmmakers going, hey, I'm looking to cast my film. Do you know any actors? And I, uh, you know, I can't tell you how many of my actors are in those films, you know, and yeah. it's a great experience because, you know, these are passion projects from actors yeah. in film school that absolutely, you know, they have production value. They have, you know, they got a crew, you know, I mean, you can get some good footage on this for your demo. And not only that, every year when I was at USC, every year at the end of the year, they took the senior projects and they screened them for the Academy and every producer and agent in LA would come. It wouldn't be the top guy. It wouldn't be the guy that owned ICM, but someone from ICM would be there you know, some, uh, I got a job, I got a three picture deal with Ivan Reitman based off of that screening of my senior film, of my graduate film. Wow. He uh, brought me in to pitch some ideas. I pitched a few uh, with a, a writing partner. He picked one he liked and he hired us on the spot, on the spot. I was still a full-time student. I was a TA, a full-time student. And uh, I was writing a script for Ivan Reitman while I was still a full-time student at USC. And for people who don't know who Ivan Reitman is, he, you know, he did uh, Ghostbusters. He did Twins with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito. He did Stripes. Stripes. I mean, he's, you know, he's... Meatballs. Meatballs. Some amazing, amazing. Yeah, yeah. At the time I was working for him, Ghostbusters was at that point in time the highest grossing comedy in history ever. And it was there for a long time. It finally got topped by uh, Home Alone. But it was the number one comedy. So, you know, so I noticed, you know, when I was looking at your IMDb, there was a couple of acting credits in there, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Do do you think it's important for a, a director to take an acting class? Yes, I took several at USC. As a matter of fact, when I didn't get into the cinema department right away, the first year I was there, I was a drama major and I took a ton of acting classes while I was still trying to get into US uh, into the cinema department. 
So yeah, I believe it. I believe I USC, you had to, they, you couldn't just say, I want to be a director and you only took directing classes. It was, I want to be a filmmaker. You learned how to edit. You learned how to light. You learned how to do sound. We did it all. So I can do pretty much any job on the set, not as well as a professional. I hired to do it, but that's kind of the point. I want the DP to be able to light the film better than I could light it. I want the production designer to design the film better than I could design it. Otherwise, why am I paying you, you know? And I want the actors to act better than I could act. Yeah, I think it's really important for a director to be able to know actors' language, know how to get them where they have to go. You know, there's different techniques and different yeah. you know, ways to get an actor where they got to go. So if you don't know, you don't know, you know. So but yeah. if you've studied the craft, you know. But I also believe that as far as directing actors goes... 80% of your job is casting the right person in that role to begin with. Then your job on set is a lot easier because you don't have to spend time trying to explain what you I, I When I was at USC, I took a directing class with Edward Dimitri, was the teacher who directed The Kane Mutiny and uh, Warlock and um, a lot of big films. With you know, every star, Gregory Peck. He was actually one of the, uh, uh, the uh, Hollywood 10. Someone asked him, he said, say I have this part with this actress, her, her mother, her character's mother died and she's, and I need her to cry. How do I help her reach that memory, core memory that will make her cry? And he said, she's read the same script you've read? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, so she knows the character's mother died and she's going to cry in this scene? And he goes, yeah. He goes, well, then don't hire an idiot. <laughs> He said, she'll know that if she's a, if she's actually an actress, she'll know that and she'll know how to access her core memory to get herself to cry. You know, he's like, that's not really your job. Your job is to kind of like tell her I want it hot. I want more. I want less. I, I want you to kind of, you know, do it this way. But but he said, if you have to take the time to delve into all of that with her, you're going to run out of time on set, you know, and you hired the wrong actress. Oh, it's good advice. I mean, so what do you look for in casting when you're in, a, in an office, you know, casting a, a project? Well, I always say that casting a, a project is not about casting the best actor per se. It's about casting the best actor for that role. You might have two actors and one guy nine times out of 10 can act circles around the other guy. But this one particular part, the other guy is just perfect for. It's like, he just gets that character or he is that character or that character speaks to him in some way and he just nails it. If I get someone who nails it, like reads it exactly like I wanted, then I get really excited. But I also have him then I give him directions to do it totally differently, even though he did it the way I want. And that's the way I'll have him do it if I cast him, but I will still have him do it completely differently. So I see whether or not he can take direction. Yeah. Because it's great if he's good at it. He gives you that scene. But what if some other scene, he's he's got it completely wrong. If he can't take direction, yes, you're yes. going to be stuck with whatever he has. Yeah, I tell my actors that all the time, you know, that, you know, you want to try it every which way possible, you know, blow it out. When you're in casting director, the director is going to say, OK, I love what you did. I love your choices. Now give me something else. You don't want to be like, what? You what? Know, that's all I had. You yeah. worked on something else. But if you yeah. did, if you worked on something else and you made some other choices, then you're ready to you throw you a curveball. You hit it out of the park. OK, you want to absolutely I'll flip it. I'll go completely the other way with it. And yeah, and show yeah. you that I have the range to, to, you know, play anything you want. 
Right, right, exactly. Because we might give you bad direction, at least I will, in casting, just to see if you can do it. You might have done it exactly the way I'm going to tell you to do it on set, but I want to see what else you're capable of and for a scene that we're not reading for right now, you know? So that's a golden nugget for the actors out there. There you go. It's a serious golden <laughs> nugget because directors will test you. They will see if you can give them something else. They want an actor that when they show up on the set, they know one, that they cast the right actor Two that, you know, if I need you to give me something else, you're going to give me something else. Yeah. You know? And, and exactly. performances, performances are truly made in an editing room. So, you know, if you don't, if you give him the same thing, five different takes when the director's in an editing room, he's got nothing to choose from. But if you've yeah. given him choices, if you tried it a little angry or, or emotional, you know, now when I'm yeah. in the editing room, I have stuff to, to choose from and I can build your performance in an editing room. If yeah. you don't give me anything, I got nothing. And you know what, too, if you go way out there somewhere, the director will pull you in. They'll say, you know what? Let's bring that down about 10 degrees, you know? The director knows what he wants, but hopefully, I always know what I want. But I'm always, but I never tell the direct, I never tell the actor before we shoot a scene how I want him to play it. Because I'm hoping he'll do something better than what I had in mind. And I'll go there. I tell that to my, you know, I had a, a, a sci-fi film and the guy goes, what do you want the, you know, it's supposed to be an alien gun. What do you want it to look like? I said, well, I know what I see in my head, but I'm hoping whatever you design is going to be 10 times better. Then if it's not, I'll tell you what I want. But hopefully, because this is your job, yep. you're going to come up with something better than I would have ever come up with. And I hope that with the actors, too. I don't give a lot of direction on the first take because I want to see what you're going to do. And I might like it better. Yeah. You know, it's making films. It's such a collaborative effort. You know, you bring all these talented people, you want them to do their job, like the actors. Absolutely. You know, the production do, you know, everybody do your job. And if you surround yourself with talented people, you know, everybody steps up their game, the wardrobe, the hair, the makeup, everything. I mean, it's like, it's like night of the demons, you know, when we made night of the demons, it, it, that was just from the cast to the crew, to the location, to the production design, to, to everything about that film really gave, you know, for me as a young actor to step into that set, that house yeah. that they, that whole house that was that you know, down, made, downtown yeah. LA that, that, that the production, you know, designers, they created a, a house that was, was scary. You know, yeah, was, I mean, it was absolutely walked in there. There was, you know, spider webs and, you know, it yeah, it's the 11th character. <laughs> yeah. It was really, truly yeah. a scary place. And, you know, we pretty yeah. much, our dressing rooms were upstairs and we lived in the place, you know, yeah. pretty much. So, you know, even just walking out of your dressing room, trying to get down to set was like, you know, you were looking over your corner, you know? Yeah. It was a spooky, spooky house and yeah. huge. It's truly so much talent. Let's talk about casting that film. I mean, that's got such a great cast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I look, look back at it, you know, it just really, it's a great cast. Can, can you, you know, tell me we, yeah, that was a tough one to cast actually for a couple of reasons. One in the script, the characters are always like 10 kids or five or three or two, and everyone has one or two lines per scene. So I could have you read 10 scenes and you still only have three lines, you know? So I had Joe write twofers. I don't know if you remember this, where you had to do a scene that wasn't in the film, but it was just your character and one other character having an argument in character about whatever or, or a discussion or something. 
And he did that for all 10 characters. He wrote five scenes with two of them so that we could have them read and actually get a feel for what they could act. Because if you tried to use anything from the script, it was too much of an ensemble. Yeah. Uh, on top of that, Witchboard hadn't come out yet. So I was still an unknown entity. Jeff, the producer, was an unknown. So no one knew if we, you know, even though I uh, had the three-picture deal with Ivan Reitman, I'd left to go direct Witchboard. So I had nothing out there that Hollywood knew about. I've got a question. Uh, how, old uh -huh. were you? how old were you when you directed uh, Night of the Demons? Oh, geez. 23? Uh, no, no, no. I was older than that. I, I was probably, by that point, 29, maybe even 30. Because okay. I, th you know, I think so, because I think I was 27 or 28 when I did Witchboard. So it was just like a year or two later. So somewhere late 20s or 30. Because I know most, I know a lot of the cast was early, early 20s, you know. Yeah, I mean, I was, that was 80, what, 87 we shot that? Yeah, actually, I think, yes, yes, it was 87. So, yeah. yeah, I was, I was 21. Yeah, April, April of 20, of uh, 87. Crazy. I remember standing outside of, was it Red Fox's building, right? Yeah, that's where we, uh, oh, yeah. Paragon, Paragon Arts was located in the Red Fox building. Yeah. yeah. And I remember standing outside, you know, of or auditioning. I think it was like my callbacks, like, you know, yeah, yeah. And it was in, and it was between me and my best friend, Ray. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're sitting outside, you know, and. You know, it's kind of weird when you're auditioning against, you know, your best friend. Yeah, you know, yeah. You know, only one guy's going to get the part. So it's always kind of weird. Yeah, I, rem I just remember vividly standing outside, you know, waiting to go in with him out there, the both of us. And then yeah. going in there. What do you do? Do you, do you remember anything about my audition for that film? Yeah, yeah. I remember how close it was between you and your friend. And the reason was because, you know, the dialogue was all really funny, even though it was a horror film. Some great dialogue made me laugh when i read the script your friend i don't remember his name right. i thought was funnier than you so i thought for the comedy angle he was the better choice but you came off more like a tough guy rebel kid and and tedra was like you want sex appeal for the girls this is the guy <laughs> i said okay yeah we have all these beautiful women i guess we should have like the macho sex symbol for the girls so that's how close it came wow. that was it well you both gave great performance so so it was never it wasn't even about the acting at that point it was just like i said it's not casting necessarily the best it's who's best for this role mm -hmm. and ultimately we just all felt that you were better for it i mean just everybody from from hal stooge you know amelia you know Linnea, kathy podwell i mean tanzine everybody lance jill Terashita, every one of those cast members was like just, I, I think it's just a perfect cast, you know? Yeah. And it, and it was hard because one, our budget was so small. We had to, uh, Tedra came in and said, I can cut our casting budget down. And we we're like, how? And she said, uh, affirmative action. If half the cast is minority, they give us a break on the cost, you know, of the cast. So it was like, I said, oh, great. So I'm now trying to cast this low budget film. I'm a director that nobody knows yet because Witchboard hasn't come out and become a hit. Joe Augustine, it's his first script ever. So he's got no name value as the writer. Plus, a lot of the agents hated the script. 
just hated it. They thought it was foul mouth and too crude and, and, you know, violent and all of that. So they even called Tedra and people who had agents that had sent their people in for witchboard told Tedra, no, we're not even going to send anyone in for this. So that was tough. Plus it was during pilot season. So anyone who had a shot, who had done a pilot or had a chance of getting cast in a pilot, they're not going to do this crappy little horror film if they can maybe do something for NBC or ABC. So we had a tough call. And in some parts, we were down to our, you know, we had like, we chose a different girl for Kathy's part originally. And then we had her read with a few people and she had such a tood that we thought, you know what, I don't think she's going to mesh well with anyone else. And that's what we need in an ensemble. So we withdrew the offer. And then Tedra said, well, what about Kathy Podwell? And I looked at my notes and I, uh, yeah, she was cute. She did a really good job, a really likable, good actress. And I looked at her headshot, but she looked like she was like 30. And I saw she, and she goes, that, she doesn't look like that. That's her headshot. She doesn't look like that. So I said, okay, well, let's bring her in. Absolutely no never thought we would use her because she was just too old. She came in the minute she walked in the door. I remembered her as, Oh, right. And of course she didn't look like her headshot. She looked like she was 12. That's a golden nugget. But yeah. And I tell people all the time, make sure you want your headshot to look good, but you want it to look like you. Yeah. Because if they bring you in on that headshot and you don't look like that, you've just wasted your time and theirs. Or you just lost the part because you don't look like what they're looking for on that photo, even though in person you're exactly what they're looking for. So anyway, it was very tough. And I said, so I have to have girls that are pretty, can act, will do nudity. And now I have to add minority to that. So that was tough. Luckily, women counted as a minority. So uh, for 20%. So then we had to have 30% more people of color. So we managed to do it and got a great cast at, in the same, you know, at the same time. Uh, although Alvin's part was always written to be black. So it's not like we, you know, tried to find a black guy to suit that. He, his character was always black. I like the idea that up until then, I wasn't a big horror film, but any horror film I'd seen, the black guy never lived, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so it's like, hey, that's kind of a cool idea. Did you ever think or expect that this film would become a cult classic? Did you? <laughs> no, no way. I always say if you get in a time machine and go back and wander around on set, even though it was a great, fun film to work on, I don't think you'd find a single person, cast, crew, or above the line that thought this thing was going to even... I was surprised we even got a theatrical of any kind. And, it, and then when we did, I thought it'd be in and out in a week. And the fact that we opened in Detroit in like September and stayed till December. What? <laughs> Listen, I, I was, you know, I was, I was the actor that got the pilot, you know, and I got my own TV series on Fox, yeah. you know, at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I found it interesting because I was on the, on the, uh, the original Halloween party poster for the right, movie. Right. It was like an alphabetical order and I was down right, all right. Way. And then when the night of the demons poster came out at top billing, it said my name first. That was like, I think they picked, they picked the most popular characters still kept it alphabetical, but they, I think they picked five of the 10. Like I think it was you, Kathy, Amelia, Linnea, and then either Alvin or Hal, I can't remember now. Yeah. yeah, I remember there was some bitching and moaning from certain um, actors. I had nothing to do with it. I didn't know in advance that they were going to do I, that. I wasn't complaining. I had tough. No, no, yeah. You, <laughs> yeah, but I think they picked, after seeing the film, they could tell which characters were going to be the most popular, and they put them on the sheet. 
This is because I remember going around and I, you know, I had a TV series at the time and I, w- I went to New York for the premiere. I, w- I was in Ohio. I was all yeah. over doing all the press for, for the mm-hmm. film. So I traveled, me and, uh, and Allison traveled to, to the theaters and it was pretty, pretty amazing being able to just, you know, see the film on a big screen in the theater in New York City. Yeah, with an audience. Yeah, with an audience. And, and just have action to it. Yeah, and that's what it was great. Every time I went and saw it with an audience, it was like, wow, this thing really works for the audience. You know, they would laugh at the right place. They would scream at the right place. You know, it's funny because Kathy Podwell then went on to do Dallas. Yeah. And uh, she says when she was doing the um, soap opera conventions that half the fans who came to see her because she was on Dallas, the other half, would bring posters and de- uh, videos of Night of the Demons for her to sign. So she had just as many Night of the Demon fans at these conventions as she did soap fans or Dallas fans, you know? What's your best yeah. memory of, of shooting Night of the Demons? Oh, geez. In general, I think I had, after having done Witchboard, I thought Night of the Demons was a lot more fun. Witchboard, the characters were more three-dimensional and they had backstory baggage. So there were scenes that were very serious. So we'd have to, you know, the set would have to become very glum so the actors could get there. And this one was kind of like, it was just a Halloween party. And so every day was just a lot of fun and no, but we never had to go dark. We never had to be quiet and oh it was always like hey what are we doing today so i had a great time i think one of the best things for me was the mirror shot simply because it worked yeah because if it hadn't worked i was screwed because it took so long to set up i wouldn't have had time to then do standard coverage if the scene hadn't worked we'd have been a half a day behind so that's a pretty awesome shot yeah yeah thank god you know i mean in theory i thought it would work but yeah, I remember Kathy Podwell looking at it and seeing a set and she goes, oh, this is going to be cool. Have you done this before? I said, would I be sweating like this if I'd done it before? No, it was tricky. I mean, every actor had to, you know, you had to actually find your little piece of broken. Exactly. It's like taking, taking, finding your mark to a new level, yeah, you know. A new level, yeah. Find your mark, find your light, find your mirror piece. <laughs> so that and Angela floating down the stairs, uh, floating down the hallway. Because everyone we talk to affects people. They all these you're gonna hang her by wires. It's all big, expensive, elaborate things that we just couldn't afford. And we were in a real house, so it's not like we had fake walls we could hang wires over. And I came up with the idea. I'd been watching Benny Hill and he had a scene where all these girls dressed like blue bonnet bells were rolling around on stage and they had skates. But the the skirts, because they belled out, hid the skates, so they just looked like they were floating. And I said, Angela's wearing that big old wedding dress that comes out like a bell skirt. If we stick her on skates and give her a push down that hall, she's going to look like she's floating. And we did it, and it looked amazing. But I was still, I thought, it's so obvious. Everyone's going to say, oh, she's on skates. And to this day, I would have people come up and say, how did you get her to float down the hall? Because I think it's so obvious because I know it skates. But... It worked. I have people tell me that was so creepy when she flew, started floating down that hallway. I was so freaking scared. And it's like periscates. Which project that you've uh, directed are you most proud of? I guess. Oh, there's a couple. I really like uh, a film noir, a neo noir thing I did called TikTok. They show it on Lifetime all the time, but they changed the title for Lifetime to A Friendship to Die For. But TikTok's playing somewhere on Hulu or whatever right now, and you should watch that version. 
But I'm really proud of that because it's really a great plot twisty murder mystery uh, film noir. Also, I did a kids film, a family film called Bigfoot that I honestly, kind of like Night of the Demons, I took it for the money and for the chance to do a kids film because I'd never done one and didn't expect that it was going to turn out that well. I was really happy with the way it turned out, which goes to prove again. I did, oh, and then I did an, a sci-fi action film called Peacemaker with Ro Robert Forster. And we became lifelong friends after that film. And he said something because, you know, he was in He started out in A pictures. Then he went down and he was in B pictures. And then Quentin Tarantino cast him in um, Jackie Brown. And he was back to doing A pictures overnight. Yeah. And he said, you know, you can't control what's going on in that world. You know, whether you're whether people want to cast you or they don't. He said, so all you can do is you take the best part you can find at the time. You show up. You know your lines, you do the work, and you give a gr as good a performance as you can get, and you hope somebody notices. And that's exactly what happened. After years of B-movies, Quentin Tarantino, who's a huge B-movie fan, saw him in all this stuff and said, he's he's my Max Cherry for yeah. Jackie I mean, Brown. And, and, and brilliant cast. I mean, he's yeah. super talented. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, I felt so lucky to work with him on Peacemaker because whether even though he was doing B-movies, he was obviously an A-list talent, you know? It, that never changed. Whether Hollywood saw him that way or not, he was always an A-list actor, and I got to work with him. And he was a fan of my work as much as I was of his, and we got a friendship out of that that lasted till the day he died. And I'll always be grateful for that. So I'm really proud of that one because it has a lot of great action sequences and a lot of the critics compared it to ter the original Terminator when it came out, you know, saying it had the same kind of action vibe and all that, which was great. Witchboard was nice because we got a, a great quote from Stephen King about it. And, you know, it was my first film and your first is always important, you know, important to you. But TikTok a lot, Peacemaker a lot, and Bigfoot a lot. And then, of course, Night of the Demons and Witchboard both, simply because they were my first two films. Night of the Demons was a blast. Like you said, we're still, we cannot see each other for 10 years, and we all get together in a room, and it's like no time has passed. Yeah. Me, when, me, you, and most of the cast went to that uh, um, convention up north a couple of years ago, just before the pandemic. Man, it was like we were out drinking and going to dinner and hanging out and no time had passed. It was like we were taking a lunch break from set, you know. Yep. I, I just had a great time with you guys. And I think that's part of it, too. You hire the right people and you get out of their way and they do good work for you. I've seen, you know, or I've heard about directors who yell at people on set or producers who yell at people. I don't think that achieves anything. If someone's doing a good job, you say, wow, good job. And then you stay the fuck out of their way. And if they're doing a bad job, you pull them aside and you say, listen, you got to up your game. And then, you know, a few days later, if they can't or they haven't, you pull them aside again and say, I'm sorry, but, you know we're going to have to replace you. You don't have to belittle people and you're not going to get the best work out of them if you do. I don't think anyway. I mean, maybe some people react to that positively. I don't see how. I certainly know I don't. And uh, one of the things I always say on the first day of shooting, I, when I meet with the crew, I say, listen, one of you might have an idea. You might see me about to shoot something and think, oh, what? I said, tell me. If I like the idea, I'll use it. I'm not one of those that has to come from me guys, and I'm certainly not an ego when it comes to that. I said, if I don't like it, I won't use it. And at that point, 
you told me your idea. If I don't like it, I won't use it. I said, the only thing we're going to have a problem is if you keep pushing me to do it after I've already made my decision. I said, but I want to hear it because if your idea is better than mine, I'm still going to get credit for it when the film comes out. You know, Kevin was brilliant when he did that. And, you know, the grip came up with it or something. That's fine by me. Anything that makes, I think we're all there in service of the film. So you as the talent, me as the director and the below line crew and the above line producers, we should all be there serving what's best for the film, not what's not what's best for our own egos. And that's the way I feel. And like I said, when I took Night of the Demons, I thought the script was funny, but I didn't think it was going to be a great film. I didn't think it was going to be some kind of groundbreaking masterwork. But I still came and brought and gave 110% because you never know. You never know. The film you think is going to be a brilliant masterpiece and the audience and the critics hate it. And then the thing you thought was crap. So you phoned it in. That becomes a hit. And then everyone's like, oh, except for, you know, Billy Gallo phoned it in. I don't know. You know, the the film was brilliant except for him because he didn't give 100 percent. So you always and that's what Robert Forster said, you know, doesn't matter what film I'm working on. I come and give the same game I give in an A picture and a C picture, you know, and you got to have that attitude. You got to because you don't know. As a matter of fact, I remember headshots. I had a casting director tell me once said, tell actors that when you get your proof sheet, pick the one you like the best, but then show it to a bunch of friends and family and ask them to pick which, you know, like their top two or three, they will all pick almost within those same three and none of them will pick the one you would have picked and say, and that's because you don't see yourself the way the rest of the world does said, go with one of the ones everyone else picked. Great advice. Let me ask you, if you could go back and give uh-huh. the younger you some advice, what would that be? Cocky serves you to a point. <laughs> But maybe not always. When I was working for Ivan Reitman, no denying his success. But for me, a great comedic director was Woody Allen. I thought Ghostbusters had its moments, but overall it was kind of meh, you know. Mm-hmm. I know that's sacrilege. Most people revere it like it's Gone with the Wind or uh, Citizen Kane. I don't. So I think because of that, I had an attitude about, because what I was writing for Ivan was a comedy. I had an attitude about comedy and I didn't agree with what he thought it should be. So I kind of, I didn't think I didn't understand how freaking amazing it was to still be a full-time film student and have Ivan Reitman give me a three picture deal. I just, I was too young and too cocky and too stupid to realize I had my own office on the Columbia lot, but because it was such a long drive from where I lived, I stayed home and wrote the script, which meant that when I turned in the script, he didn't know me. So if he didn't like the script, he wasn't going to work with me. He just said, I don't like the script. But if I'd been there in the office every day and built a relationship with him, then he might have felt more like taking me under his wing and showing me what I was doing wrong, or at least what I don't think I was doing it wrong, but what I was doing wrong as opposed to the kind of comedies he made. So, you know, my cockiness got me into USC, but I think it kind of screwed my relationship with Ivan Reitman. Got it. Yeah, it's great advice. You know, check the ego at the door, you know, that cockiness. It's Yeah, it serves you to a degree, but don't let it become who you are 100%. 
So if you could talk to a young filmmaker, an up and coming young filmmaker and give them advice, you know, about, you know, the business has changed drastically from when yeah. you got in the game. You know, what, what advice would you give a, a young filmmaker? Oh my God. It's so much harder now because with the advent of digital cameras and people in Wisconsin getting their friends together and shooting a feature horror film for $10,000 all in, and then they're going to the same distributor you're going to with your, you know, million dollar movie. So you want some money up front because this film costs a million dollars. The distributor can get the $10,000 film for free. So even if he goes out and sells that and only makes 60,000 off of it, that's 60,000 free and clear because he didn't spend a dime on it. The guys who made the film don't make any money, but that's who you're competing with now. The market's a lot tougher now because of that. And you would think people say, oh, well, yeah, but now there's so many more streaming services. So there are a lot more areas where you can shop your film. Yeah, but you're not going to make any money doing that. That's the problem. So if you are making your own movie, you're doing it because you, you know, it's a great hobby or you really love it to the point that you've got a day job to support yourself so you can make your movie because most of these guys don't make cash off of these kind of low budget films and the distributors just take it and run. And how are you going to sue them for money you're owed when what it costs for a lawyer is going to be more than the money you're owed? Are you talking you about know? the horror genre? Any genre now, but horror is where most people do the lower budget stuff. But yeah, I think for filmmakers, it's tough. I say this, the one thing that helps that still that was that was true when I was starting out and is still probably the most true thing today is write a script everyone wants. That's, you know, so if you if you're a director, you pretty much have to be a writer, too, until you're at a point where you're established enough that people are sending you scripts and hiring you just to direct. You have to write your own material and you have to write something original. I always go back to like James Wan's Saw. It was a seminal horror film. It was a you know, and it gets written off as as torture porn, which it's not because I really don't like torture porn films. It's really clever. It's got some brilliant plot twists and it's got a super strong cast. And it was made, I think, for like a million dollars, which is not, I mean, is really nothing, but compared to like, you know, the $10,000 movies that are getting made now, like Paranormal Activity or uh, uh, Blair Witch Project, you know, for every one of those, there's a million that didn't get picked up or made no money. The script, get a script that someone will buy and produce. Okay, so you've written many scripts. You know, yeah. if I'm a aspiring filmmaker, I've never written, but you know, I want to write a script. What advice would you give me as a young, you know, up and coming filmmaker? I want to I want to write a script. What advice? What what book should I read? What where do Okay. To- uh Sid Field's book is probably the best. Okay. It's actually written in script format while it's t- teaching you how to write a script. There, But there are a ton of books out there. Just read, read stuff, read a novel, even though it's not a film. It's still you learn all about character development and protagonists and antagonists or antagonistic forces. That's what things don't understand. A film doesn't have to have a bad guy to be a good drama. It has to have antagonistic forces. That could be a guy on a boat that's sinking. And he, every time he figures out a way to fix this thing, something else goes wrong Uh, in film class. Mort Zarkoff, who ended up being one of my teachers after getting me in the department, used to say, you know, uh, 
writing is a guy falls down a manhole and now he's broken his leg. So with planks and stuff down there, he, he, he manages to make himself a splint for his leg. But now there's a huge storm coming and the manhole is filling up with water. And it's like, okay, maybe that's not so bad. If he can tread water, it'll, he'll actually get him out. So he has to just tread water, but it's filling so slowly, it's going to take a while. So it does, so he's starting to get tired and he's having problems and he figures out a way to, you know, take a board and, and make himself like float a little. But now as the water's rising, he sees a damaged electrical wire. And he realizes when the water hits that wire, he's going to be electrocuted. So now what does he do? And that's good drama. There's always some kind of antagonistic force that he has, he overcomes, but then there's something else in the way. So no bad guy, no villain, just this hero who's in all this jeopardy, but from natural causes, but it's still the same as if he was fighting a bad guy who's circumventing him at every turn. Yeah. So it's all the obstacles. That's it obstacles he used to do a thing in class where he would say okay and he would stand at one end of the class and then he would walk across to the other side and he goes not so exciting right then he would climb over the desks and the students and everything to get to the other side and he said a lot more interesting love that yeah that always stuck with me so what's next so what's tomb of terror i'm writing my first comic book nice now when i was um in middle school, my brother and I used to draw our own comic books, uh, you know, not great. And they were all our own characters, but they were basically ripoffs. We had a Captain Wonder character who was pretty much Captain America. Huh. We had a, a character called uh, Tarantula, who was basically Spider-Man, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. But they were our own comics. Our, our, our brand was Wonder Comics. And we each drew about five different heroes. And we draw like a monthly issue of each one basically just for ourselves. And I, I love doing it. And I wasn't a bad artist, but I knew early on that I was never going to be good enough to do it professionally. So when I discovered film camera, I knew that was what I was destined for. But I still love the idea that, so I, uh, of a um, creating a comic book. So I found a comic book artist who's drawn for Marvel and DC and all the big name brands. And who, by the way, his name is Thomas Tenney, and we're no relation. <laughs> so I said, but I thought, how could we go wrong? Two Tennies working on this comic book. So I'm writing it. He's drawing it. It's a horror. It's going to be a limited three issue edition. And we've already got publishers interested in it just based on the idea and the two of us being attached. So, awesome. Yeah. So I'm really excited about this because, you know, I haven't done comics since I was in middle school. So to have, you know, one being drawn by Thomas, who's like a brilliant artist, is just, you know, great. Just I'm so excited about it. It's probably going to be another year or so before it's done. But I'm still <laughs> every day. It's like, are we doing Thomas? I want copies when they come out. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely, man. I mean, that's what, Everyone's getting one for Christmas. <laughs> that's my Christmas present that year. So, so, you know, Night of the Demons, it's really 33 years since we made it. Yeah, and I, which is amazing because I was like, what, 12 when I made it. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> but if, you know, these fans are, are truly amazing fans. I mean, we've oh my God. and, you know, I've, I'm, I'm blown away anytime we go and we see these fans, they come, they've got Amelia's yeah. tattoos on their body. They're just. Oh, my like, God. How many people have you seen with 
Angela or uh, with Amelia tattoos or Linnea tattoos. It's amazing. I saw one guy with a stooge tattoo, you know, it's like, holy cow. I'm just jealous nobody's got a Sal tattoo. <laughs> I know. Hey, ladies. <laughs> so, so, but, Do a Sal so, tattoo. If you could, you know, talk to the fans right now, because I'm sure Night of the Demons fans are going to be, you know, listening to this podcast. For me, I just want to say thank you for all the support. You know, you're truly oh, absolutely. diehard fans. <laughs> It's always a pleasure to meet you guys and, and take pictures with you and sign autographs. I want to give a special treat to the fans. I want to put together a, a table read of the original Halloween party script that I found in, in my closet over here. And cool. I made a bunch of copies of it. And what I want to do is I want to put a table read and I want you to direct it. And we'll all yeah. sit and we can do like a Zoom, you know. like Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, I can read all the action. Yeah, when you guys do your characters. I, I think it'd be a lot of fun to have the the full cast do a table yeah. video, and we can you know do it live on uh, Facebook or Zoom. You know. Yeah, 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 do. absolutely. So absolutely. that's in the works for the fans out there. I really truly want to put us all together. I think it'd be a lot of fun. I think the absolutely the beauty is is how much fun we had. We had fun making the film. So I think you know when you see it, you feel it. I mean, I tell my actors all the time when you go into an audition, you do all this stuff. Make sure you're yeah. having fun. Yes. Because if you're having fun, then I'm having fun watching you. If you're yeah. in your head and you're worried about your lines or whatever, but what people are going to think about you, you know, I say when you're in your head, you're dead. When you're in your heart, you're smart. You're coming from play. You're having fun. It's a different energy. And I think truly what, what was captured on film with that Night of the Demons is the fun we were having. It was a big party. It was Absolutely. You know, playtime. And we were playing. We were playing, you know. Yeah. Scary, you know, like when. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh. It was like a, it was a genuine Halloween party. We yeah. were all trying to scare each other in our costumes and then just have a good time. Yeah, so and uh, yeah, and you know, too, I find it endearing actually, personally, when a young actor or actress comes in and they're completely together and they're doing their part and they're really reading it well. But you look at their hand and it's uh, let me get it up here. It's like they're holding their page and it's like that, and you know, okay in spite of the fact they're presenting themselves like this, this is important to them because look at how they're shaking, yeah. you know? But like you said, that's the only way I should be able to tell you're nervous. Yeah. Everything that you should be projecting this confidence. Yeah, but I, you know what I call that? I call that excitement. I, yeah. You know, because you're on the right path. This is what you want to be doing. So your instrument Absolutely. is, is vibrating and it's going, yes, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. So that little tremor in the hands, that little heart palpitation is like green light go. This is where I'm supposed to be. Get yeah. Outside your comfort zone. If you're doing stuff and you're not, you know, you're comfortable, everything I truly feel you want is outside your comfort zone. You got to get that. You know, yeah. you want yeah. that. That's yeah. like batteries for an actor. You want that. So that's why I took, to, yeah. That's why I took Bigfoot. Yeah. You know, it was a family film and it was like, okay, you know, I went home. It was Bigfoot though, you know, so we had this big animatronic. Bigfoot monster that looked great. Uh, it looked as good as the one from uh, like Harry and the Hendersons. Just yeah, really awesome. Great. But uh, I went home and I told Susan, I said, I'm finally doing a, a family film and I still have to deal with a monster. You know, <laughs> I'm still dealing with special effects and monsters, even on a family film. So if you want to say something to the fans. Yeah. You know, I just, I got to tell you, it's it's exciting to meet the fans who come and tell you, wow, I saw this when I was 12. And I think, where were your parents, you know? There was a time when we started doing these conventions when I just, I wrote it off to nostalgia. These guys saw this film 
at their impressionable age. So of course it means a lot more to them than it would if they saw it now. But when I started going to the screenings and there'd be like, you know, 20% of the audience had never seen the film. And these were grownups now, you know, they weren't kids anymore. These are people in their thirties or forties, even their fifties who had not seen it. And they see it and they would come up and go, oh my God, I can't believe I'd never seen that film before. It was great. It was, um, Hal was friends with the director of Valley Girl. And she came to a Night of the Demon screening and I thought, oh my God, you know, I can't think of her name. I'm going to hate myself later for not remember. Um, yeah, it's right on the tip of my tongue. Big director and, you know, art film director. And I thought, Ugh. and I was just worried that she was, you know, I was embarrassed that she was going to hate it. And she came over to me after the screening and said, I can see why this film's so popular. It is so hip and funny and sharp and original and it was like wow she sent me this nice email later just saying how great it was you know and martha coolidge martha coolidge and getting you know i mean getting that email from her was like reading the article by stephen king where he said nice things about witchboard it's just wow somebody whose work i admire and who is you know really successful is a fan of my work it's like Todd Allen, who started Witchboard, worked on Django Unchained, and he said over lunch, Tarantino came over, sat down across from him, and started talking about Witchboard and Night of the Demons, you know? It's, oh, like, it's oh. like, holy cow, you know? That's, awesome. That's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's like amazing when someone who's that successful and that, and does it that well. So, you know, it's whose work you admire, then admires your work as well. That's, that's nice. But it's the fans who keep it popular and keep it current and make it, you know, I mean, not only, I mean, I don't know about you, but when we were making this film, not only did I not think anyone would even know about it 33 years later, I mean, it's been released on VHS, Laserdisc, DVD, Blu-ray. There have been three or four documentaries, another big one still to come out, a soundtrack album. Yeah, I used to have people ask me. It's one, two, three, a remake. A remake, a big budget remake with name actors in the remake. Yeah, it's like, who knew? Who knew? But thank God we brought our A game when we were doing the first one so that all of that could come after, you know? Awesome. Kevin, I can't thank you much enough for coming on the podcast. Oh, hey, I thank you for having me, buddy. Yes, I yes. hope I gave you one or two interesting nuggets. <laughs> There's a lot of gold in here. So, you know, okay, this, this will be released uh, like probably like a week before Halloween. So this is a okay. Halloween, Halloween gift for the family. Halloween edition. Yeah. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Kevin, stay safe, stay healthy. I look forward to seeing you, you know, once. Things yeah, happen, once this is all behind us. All absolutely. get together. I was thinking that, you know, we've had so much fun at these conventions that I want to actually have a party and have like a Night of the Demons reunion, just party, you know, everyone from the film over here at the house or, hey, maybe do it at your place. Right, right, right. Actual, a party, no screening, yeah. no, just us hanging out and yeah. visiting like we do right, when we're right, at the conventions. Right here at my studio, you know, we'll, I, we can, we can have the movie playing in the background. And just there you go. Party. Yeah, perfect. Okay, that I'm sounds like a lot of fun. Maybe maybe next year when you can do Halloween, we'll do a Halloween party there. That would be awesome. Since that was the original title. Yes. <laughs> okay, thanks for having me, buddy. Yeah. I'll All see right. you soon. See Bye-bye. you soon. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. Please rate, review, share this with your friends. Subscribe if you haven't. 
please take whatever you get from here, the golden nuggets, and apply them to your career. Go after your dreams with passion. Don't let anybody tell you it can't be done. I believe in you. Follow your dreams. I'll see you in Hollywood.